And, you know, to my view, uh, I don't think God creates junk. And even if God did, I don't think it's really our place to say that. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the Christian church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. Now, we're not always going to agree, and that's okay, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to build bridges and not barriers. Our guest today is Reverend Dr. Marsha Ledford, civil rights attorney. Marsha, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Joey. It's a delight to be with you. I'm glad we got to connect. We were originally slated for down the line this year, but I'm glad we moved it up and we got to connect. Me too. I've really been looking forward to our time together. So before we dive into our time, can you give our listeners a little bit about who you are, where you are, and some of the work that you do? Sure. Um, I hail from the Motor City, Detroit. Uh, I am, as we say here in town, a GM brat. My dad worked for General Motors for many years. Um, I'm married to a woman named Linda, who is a Ford brat uh, that so far hasn't seemed to cause any problems after almost 40 years next year. Uh, I'm, I did civil rights attorney work for the first three decades of my working life. But as a teen, I sensed a call to ordain ministry. And of course, at the time, um, there weren't a lot of opportunities that I could see for women. And so I followed my uh, path to law because it was a helping profession, and I was very interested in the Constitution. And over time, the call did not only not go away, but it just kept getting louder and louder. And the Holy Spirit was uh, basically kicking my butt pretty good. <laughs> so I finally just relented and said, all right, I'll do it, but you have to help me. And she did. So I went to seminary and I'm ordained in the Episcopal Church as a priest. And I founded Political Theology Matters to write, speak, teach, preach, whatever, about the role of progressive Christians becoming more active faith-based advocates in the public square. You know, you've been busy. I have. <laughs> <laughs> that is so exciting. And it, and it does touch on a little bit of what we're going to dive into today. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, but for starters, we're going to talk about salvation. It's a topic that I think many of our listeners are familiar with if they grew up in the church. Uh, we know that phrase. Uh, but for the sake of our conversation, Marsha, can we define what salvation is? You know, when we use that term, we usually mean we need saving from something. But for the sake of this discussion, what do we mean when we say salvation? Well, and I'm going to focus this answer primarily on what's going on in Protestant circles, because the word salvation and being, quote, saved, end quote, has, uh, it's different than in the more liturgical traditions. Um, you know, uh, salvation comes from the Greek word, which means uh, deliverance or uh, being saved from um, mortal peril, uh, sin, death, all those kinds of things. Uh, but we see in the New Testament 
that salvation is described in the three tenses also. It's described uh, in the past. We have been saved. Uh, it is described as we are being saved, as in uh, 1 Corinthians. Ephesians refers, there's a verse in Ephesians that refers to salvation in the past tense. And then there's this idea of shall be saved that comes in Romans. And Paul seems to be, uh, generally speaking, more concerned about future salvation, like what happens to our eternal soul. But there is a different, there's an, another kind of salvation that has been the subject of uh, much discussion. There, a lot of ink has been spilled on this, where you have being saved by justification, by grace alone, or whether works are also important to being saved. In other words, to not only uh, be baptized as a Christian, but then to act like a Christian after you've been baptized and saved. Um, I grew up in the American Baptist tradition, and so the believer's baptism was very important. I was baptized when I was nine years old, but I am now part of a tradition that will baptize infants, which has been, as you know, very controversial for a very long time. Um, but we also follow that up with confirmation, where the the baptizand, the person baptized, uh, makes a formal affirmation of faith at a time of you know, knowledge. So is salvation just about where our eternal soul winds up, or is it also about uh, how faith and works are supposed to go together? And I believe that there are two kinds of salvation. I believe that uh, we can't earn our way into heaven. When, when we are uh, baptized, when we accept that Christ is our Savior, any, any way that you want to phrase that, um, we can't earn that. So our pre-works, the works leading up to our baptizing and our salvation, uh, are, are not counted. They, they don't count. But I do believe that we are expected to act like Jesus and help others, and help usher in the reign of God. So, to give you an example of how big a deal this is. I was just going to ask, do we have any examples of this? Yeah. Uh, well, in 1999, of course, it was Luther that started these, these discussions about justi justification by grace. And um, so the World Federation, the Lutheran World Federation of Churches and the Roman Catholic Church signed a, you know, a, a, a proclamation in 1999. And this is what it says. By grace alone, in faith in Christ's saving work, and not because of any merit on our past, we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit who renews our hearts while equipping and calling us to good works. So that statement combines the two camps, the Protestant camp and the Roman Catholic camp. The Protestant camp is about um, justification by faith and eternal salvation. And the Roman Catholic position has always been really about good works. So let me ask you, 
I think a lot of people who have grown up in some of the more American tradition, less of the, let's call it ancient church, for lack of a better term, uh, we hear salvation as this one and done event. We hear Mm -hmm. it as, uh, you know, fire insurance, for lack of a better term, that, you know, this is the event that has culminated. And yeah, we should be living out our Christian ideals and, and living like Jesus. But this is salvation. Why has the focus just been on the event and not on the the life aspect of what follows? Well, that's a huge question. I'm full of simple uh, ones. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a huge question because uh, I think that the, there are a number of complex answers that go along with that. In some instances, I really do believe that the focus is only on the believer's baptism and salvation of the eternal soul. Uh, to sort of opt out of the rest of what's going on in the world. Because when you engage in mission and good works, you are going to encounter controversial things. It just goes hand in hand. And so this is a way to sort of, you know, live in a bubble and just say, well, I'm saved and the rest of it doesn't matter. So I'm just going to do my thing and. There you are. Especially if you have an annihilationist point of view that all of this is going to burn anyway. Yeah. Yep. And I think that's true of a lot of evangelicals. Mm-hmm. So why, why should I care? Why should I worry about pollution and all this other stuff when it's all for naught anyway? Which is sad because then all of that really then gets dumped into this category that we would call today social justice. Yes. Just living for, well, not living for, but, but being active in our communities, fostering equality between our fellow man and woman, uh, trying to take care of the places that we live in. And yet Christians just look at that and say, well, that has nothing to do with a relationship with Jesus. And yet what you're suggesting is it has everything to do with being in a relationship with Jesus. It has everything to do with being in a relationship with Jesus. Mm -hmm. Even on the cross, he saved somebody. Hmm. That's a powerful thought. And so now, does Jesus talk about this type of engagement, this type of salvation? Because if we do look in the Bible, we don't really see him saying, you know, if you just ask me into your heart, you'll be okay. Does he talk about what we would look at as this works living out of our salvation that's interesting um there are a few the word salvation shows up a lot more in the epistles that was something after you you asked me that question uh over the weekend and i thought hmm that's a that's an interesting question so i got out my concordance and looked around So the places where Jesus mentions salvation, uh, it's when he calls Zacchaeus down from the tree and says, I'm going to come to your house. Um, Today, salvation has come to this house for the son of man came to seek out and save the lost. So he's uh, praising Zacchaeus for responding, for having the curiosity to get up in the tree in the first place. And then to come down to him and respond and have Jesus into his home, he's, uh, he says, 
you know, you will have salvation today. Basically what he says to the one of the thieves on the cross with him. Very truly, I tell you, today you will be in paradise because he understood who Jesus was. Finally, he had that giant epiphany a bit late up on the cross, nailed up there. However, he said, you know, I believe in you and I want to be with you. And Jesus said, okay. So, and then there's references to Jesus as being salvation. Um, Simeon, when he's presented at the temple, refers to him as the salvation of Israel. So does John the Baptist. Talks about Jesus as the salvation. Um, Let's see. Oh, and uh, Jesus refers to salvation in living water Hmm. with the woman at the well in John 4. And what's interesting, at least off the top of my head, is that all of these somewhat tangential, maybe a bit of a stretch, but each one of these is the person's response to the encounter with Jesus. Yes. It's fascinating. It is. So it has nothing to do with praying a prayer and just being good for the rest of our lives. Well, yes and no. Yes and no, right? (laughs) (laughs) Because I I, I do believe that, okay, let's say... That we say the believer's baptism, uh, we have the believer's baptism, and we're saved. And we know it. But uh, uh, save the witnesses who were at our baptism. How does anybody else know that we are followers of Christ? Or is it just a change in our so-called legal status? Because that's what the patristic fathers were arguing. You know, they did not like that um, it didn't. There was no requirement for us to uh, live out our faith as examples of the love of Christ. It had to be more than just being saved. Okay. So, um, and then, you know, the Protestant argument that happened much later in the 1500s, uh, the, the Protestant movement was very upset that it looked like we could earn our way into this salvation by justification and grace because they they and i agree with that i think that you know it's there for us there's no way we can earn it we avail ourselves of it or we don't so it takes some action it takes the man you know the man on the cross saying take me with you it's zacchaeus saying i want some of this you know it's there has to be some affirmation and then action that follows it up so let me ask a follow-up. How does this differ from passages that we do see in the New Testament, like Ephesians 2, Romans 3, James 2, where it says we're not justified by the works that we do? Is that right. similar to what you had said, where it's not, you know, it is by grace that we're saved, and so this is calling out the fact that the works don't save us, but the works should flow from the fact that we are saved? Uh I think that's ultimately what it's saying. We do have contradictions. Okay. We have contradictions between, as you said, Romans and James, for example. Um, So let's unpack that a little bit. So James, we think, is one of the earlier letters. But it it, it it has often been attributed to Jesus's brother. We don't 
think that it was Jesus's brother necessarily because the Greek is very sophisticated. There's reliance on the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament written in Greek. Uh, there's there's lots of reasons that it, it probably wasn't him, but it was an or early writing. The Gospels did not come until much later. Okay. The, from the 60s into to 60 AD or CE okay. to, to 100 to 120 for John. So this is a long time after the death of Jesus. But these early writings are talking uh, about um, your works being part of your a follower of the way. So what this shows is, is there were already different schools of thought that were developing, even with the early church. And Christianity is very good about disagreeing on something and then splitting off. Okay, we, that happened first in 1054 when the East and the West Church split over the Filioque. So now... You know, then there was the Lutheran Reformation, then there was the English Reformation, then there was the Reformation in Europe. So there's, there's going to constantly be disagreements of interpretation that is part and parcel of our Christian tradition from the very early days. I think, um, uh, I think James goes too far when he says, for without works, faith is dead. I don't agree with that. So we, we have to just look at, at, and James was one of the last uh, letters to come into the biblical canon. Okay. It was in the th third or fourth century. So, you know, and Luther wanted to have it removed. Hmm. Luther wanted James out. He detested the letter of James. He was all Romans three and four. So he was on the one side, James is way over here on the other side, and nary the twain shall meet, except we have to find a way to live and work with those. Right. Now, Marsha, let me ask a very practical question. Maybe it's personal, but that's this show. Um, <laughs> you know, Living this out, there there needs to be some sort of demonstrative version of this salvation, of this faith, specifically with this month being Pride Month. Yeah. And given your your uh, experience within social work and, and activism, things like that, how do Christians work out that that visible form of salvation with the LGBTQ community? Again, you are very good at these giant questions. My mama raised me right. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I think we have to move away from the clobber passages. Yeah. Uh, the seven sections of the Bible where uh, homosexuality is spoken of negatively and recognize the context of those writings. Uh, the... Levit Leviticus passages were written at a time when Israel was trying to distinguish itself from other countries around it. Uh, there was a practice of pagan uh, cults, and there were uh, prostitutions, male and female, who were part of that process. It is thought that Leviticus was 
code was part of Israel being able to distinguish itself from its neighboring countries by its conduct. Uh, and of course, we didn't have, uh, this was well, well before the Enlightenment. We did not understand sexual orientation in the way that we do now. Uh, the word homosexuality did not exist in the Bible until I think the 1930s or 40s when the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, uh, incorporated that term for the first time. And if I understand this correctly, they didn't distinguish between a pedophile and a gay man, which is a very important distinction to make, let me just say. And of course, uh, women have not been taken seriously because we uh, anatomically there is something missing. So uh, I would say set the clobber passages aside because they were written between four communities that lived, you know, two to 5,000 years ago and recognize that what we understand as life today in the 21st century is very, very different. And we have science to help back it up. And science says that having a lesbian or gay sexual orientation is normal, assuming that you're not upset about it. So that's it, too. And then I would also say uh, we need to stop allowing our relationship with our creators to be navigated horizontally by others. And to maintain that vertical relationship with our creator and not let a lot of other people get in between that. And if you're, you think you're doing that to save somebody's soul, stop doing that. Which, which brings another question. I hope this is a good one, too. <laughs> so much of our salvation, as far as working it out, is centered around evangelism. Yes. And yet when we do that, we either come off as insensitive, we come off as mm -hmm. bigots, we come off as uh, just just tone deaf to culture, to people. Um, mm -hmm. Why do you think that? Well, I shouldn't ask. Why do you think I, I understand that if this is the most important thing to you, the best way to share it is to try to bring others involved. What's a better way that we could do that? Because, you know, if faith is important to us, if we value this relationship, this salvation, then some of the way that we live that out will be to share it with others. But we've done a yeah. pretty crappy job of doing that. Um, what's a better way that we could do that? I think we need to just remain focused on the things that we have in common in that, you know, with LGBTQ Christians, their faith is just as important to them as it is to anybody else. And that we share the Bible and we share Jesus Christ as our savior. And we share a loving God who created us in God's image and uh, created us because God didn't want to be alone. And, you know, to my view, uh, I don't think God creates junk. <laughs> and even if God did, I don't think it's really our place to say that. So the best way to share our faith with others, even though we're not so sure about this sexual orientation stuff, is to focus on the love of Christ, uh, Christ's Christ's healing and redeeming works in the world that he walked in. Um, realizing that everybody is created in God's image 
and that is to be uh, cherished and uplifted and cared for. Those are the things that are the most important. If you look at the whole Bible, first the Old Testament and then the New, the whole Bible is about God's saving grace. Saving the Israelites from innumerable problems that they had. And then the coming of Christ who uh, defeated death once and for all. That's what it's all about. And leave it up to God who goes where. And I think that's a, it's a profound word because it literally takes the, it takes the pressure off. You know, we're not in charge of who goes where and, and you know, what people do with their lives, uh, but it uh, allows us to stay in relationship uh, and not become people who either you see it my way or I'm not going to stay in relationship with you. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and like you said, you know, we just split off when that happens. We, we've done that very well over the last couple hundred years. Uh, but Marsha, what you were saying was very individual. And I think if we all start doing that as an, as an individual call, the yeah. world will look very different. What would you recommend to churches as far as their teaching on this? You know, maybe this is a sermon series, a small group study, or, or just a, a, a call to their people. For leaders in the church, organizations that, that you know, foster people's spiritual development every seven days, what would you recommend for them to better handle the living out of our salvation? Well, <clears throat> I think that uh, a preaching series and a coinciding Christian formation class or series of classes on not just accepting LGBTQ people, but on understanding how our sexuality forms, understanding the workings of being a human being, I think is really, really important to help us have a better handle on You know, nobody that I know who is openly LGBTQ uh, does this out of choice. Let me tell you, you would have to be nuts to put up with this if it wasn't really you. So um, I I think that it's a comprehensive, maybe one or two year process depending on how accepting your congregation is and how strident your message has been. If you've been stridently anti-gay for a long time, then I think this is um, this education and, and whatnot is probably left to others. I think it's very hard to, as we say in the law with a jury to unring the bell, you know, once once some, a jury hears something, they are not going to forget it, no matter how many instructions the judge gives that says you are to disregard that comment. Yeah, sure. Uh, it, it doesn't work that way. So if you are a pastor of a congregation that you think would be open to this, that's a different matter. I think if, you know, it's that movable middle. And I think if you're uh, your congregation might possibly have the heart to open up to this, uh, then I would uh, try it. But what you are at, remember, what you are asking people to do when you try to get them to change their view on accepting LGBTQ people, Christians, as legitimate members of the body of Christ, you are asking them to do a major paradigm shift. If they have heard the opposite for a long time, 
is really what, in my opinion, what tends to get somebody to change is when they face it personally, directly, when someone really dear to them comes up and says, oh, hey, by the way, I'm lesbian, I'm gay, I'm whatever. And then they have to face it because the choice is stay in relationship with this person and work through it or not. And that's typically what causes somebody to be willing to have a big paradigm shift. It doesn't happen just every day, all the time. It doesn't work like that. And what's, what's funny that's coming to mind is, is it's very similar to the, the salvation experience. You know, it doesn't just happen. Nobody just makes a choice. It's, it's the working of others in your life and, and the Holy Spirit drawing you to himself. Right. And, and then once that happens, like you have a choice because you've been so impacted that you then need to, to engage with others. And, and it's, it's very similar. Yeah, it is. But that's a good point. I hadn't thought of it like that, but it, that's right. Well, Marsha, this has been a phenomenal conversation and uh, we'll have to get you back because we've only just stretched the surface of this. But uh, uh, if people wanted to follow up with you more, if they had more questions about this, where can they find you online? Tell us a little bit about Political Theology Matters. PoliticalTheologyMatters.com is my website and it uh, you can get lots of information about the mission. Uh, in terms of getting me to uh, come and teach at your church um, to explain what faith-based advocacy is or political theology, which is essentially speaking your faith in the public square to uh, achieve greater social justice. So check that out. Uh, my email is marcia at miptm.com, and that'll be in the show notes. Marsha at myptm.com. And you can, you know, write me about whatever. And uh, I'm happy to, if you're interested in developing some sort of a mission or uh, public theology action, and you want to bounce that off of me, I'm happy to help. Um, I have a book coming up at the end of the year. And it is going to be a how-to manual, how to do, be a faith-based advocate, or as I like to say, the FBA. So um, it talk, it's got theology in it. I mean, it, it goes through some important uh, examples of Jesus being a public theologian. I think he and Moses were our two original public theologians. Um, and uh, about how you can get involved, the kinds of things that you can do. It's really important. You know, I have people say to me, um, you know, I'm an introvert and I'm kind of shy and I just, the idea of going to a protest just does not do it for me. And I'll say, well, that's fine. You know, we can't all be at a protest. Uh, we need uh, speech writers and graphic designers to develop outreach materials to announce an event. We need, you know, researchers. We need to do a power analysis in terms of who are the decision makers that we want to address about our grievance. Uh, there are all kinds of things that people can do to act as the body of Christ and complement one another in their skills and training and education and passion. So uh, you can learn more about all of that stuff in my book and on my website. And like you said, we'll throw it in the show notes. But again, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. 
Well, thank you. This was a delight. And um, uh, I'll let you know when the book is available. Yeah, and we'll, we'll uh, make sure we blast it out as soon as it gets out. And uh, again, thank you for listening to this episode of Dismantle Podcast. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change.